continue this week with number six in the Ten Commandments. And since it's only three words long, I'm going to go back and have a refresher on where we are and where we've come through. So Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1 through verse 13. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them, because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or your daughters, your male or female servants, your animals, or the immigrant who is living with you. Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill the word of God for the people of God. So finally, we get to an easy one. Three words. Do not kill. Anyone confused by that? Are we all in agreement? All right, let's go home. We're good. If only that were true. If just once I opened a commentary on the Bible and it comes to a section and the writer of that commentary was like, yeah, it, no explanation needed. It's good. It's never been the case yet, and I have a feeling it's not the case ever. Do not kill. That seems simple. I would imagine all of us in here are free from breaking this commandment. I'm not going to pry and ask for her hands. I don't need to know. But this isn't that simple. Because frankly, there's a lot of murder in the Old Testament. Mary read the account of Cain and Abel, the first murder that's recorded. And there's a lot of killing in the Old Testament. Some that is said to be justified. So what exactly does this commandment mean? The word here in Hebrew is only used when it's talking about murder or illegal killing or unjustified killing. There are other words used for sentences carried out when a person is killed or for war when people are killed. So even if we take that at face value and say, okay, this is a commandment not to kill out of revenge, or unjustly. And that killing's okay if it's in war or if someone's done something bad enough that they deserve to be killed. 
And I think that's how a lot of people approach this commandment. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. Jesus likes to throw a wrench into all of these things that people felt like they understood and they knew, especially when it came around killing. Jesus expands what it means to murder. That we don't have to lift a finger. We don't have to physically harm anyone. But if we are walking around on this earth harboring anger and resentment towards others, then we are guilty of breaking this commandment. Further, in the story of the woman who is caught committing adultery and she's drugged into the streets to be stoned by the authorities, something that is justified in the Old Testament, Jesus stops them and says, if you are without sin, you may cast the first stone. And slowly they all drop their stones and they walk away. Jesus seems to have a much different understanding of these commandments than the rest of us do, or that the people who received them did, or as the Jewish authorities who lived in Jesus' day did. Because the problem with these commandments is as soon as they were given, what happened? People started to find workarounds. How do I get to do these things and yet still feel good about myself as though I haven't broken any commandments? So people in positions of power would kill people on trumped-up charges. Does that sound familiar? People in power trumping up charges against somebody else and killing them. When we get to Holy Week, maybe it'll be a refresher. King David did it. He coveted another man's wife, slept with her, she got pregnant. He's like, uh-oh. How are we going to explain this away? He's away at war. Calls him back. He won't do what David wants and schemes, so he sends him off to the front lines to die in battle. Now David could say, well, I didn't kill him. He was killed in war. But when the prophet confronted him, he did in fact kill him, even if he didn't raise his own hand to do it. Three little words, do not kill. And complex meaning behind them. Remember, the world that this was given to was brutal, and life was short, and killing was common. Neighboring kingdoms, and kingdoms were just basically city-states that had a leader, a king, and they would fight each other all the time. In fact, at one point in the Bible, it says there's a season that kings send out their armies to battle. So apparently springtime comes and everyone battles up and goes out and that's what they did. If you had a problem with your neighbor, you get them before the authorities and you tell them they did something horrible and they pass the sentence of death. 
Or you could go the Henry VIII route. And if those wives just keep on giving you, you know, keep not giving you male children, boy, they're guilty of treason and they have to be executed. This commandment's been abused and continues to be abused. And it still remains complicated for us. What do we do about war in our modern times? What do we do about the death penalty? Where we know people have innocently died. What about abortion? And that's just where a life is lost. What about killing someone's reputation and destroying their life? That happens all too often. When I was in seminary, I worked nights at a hospital as a tech in the ICU. I was interested in chaplain work, so I thought I'd get a job working in a hospital, and that's what I could get. And I enjoyed it. Unless things were slow in the ICU and they didn't have a lot of patients, which would happen from time to time, and then the text would have to be sent to other parts of the hospital to work. That was my least favorite thing. When I came in and I only saw three patients, I just thought, oh no, where am I going to end up? My least favorite place to end up was in the inpatient psychiatric floor. You were locked in, it was a locked unit, and basically all I did was took a clipboard, and every 15 minutes, you had to see someone, make sure they were okay and they were still alive, and you had to mark it down. Every 15 minutes, every patient. The one night I went into one room, doing the round, as soon as you stopped, you got to start again, and a female patient had stripped and was laying naked on her bed, asleep. Came out, I told the nurse, just letting you know, they're like, well, she's not out here making a bunch of fuss. If she stays in there, that's fine. I was a seminary student and going through the ordination process at that point. So I said, well, that's a problem for me. I don't, not her nudity or anything like that, but if I were to go in on one of these checks, and if she were to accuse me of something, that would have been the end of my ordination process. I wouldn't have had to done anything or been convicted of anything, but the accusation would have been the end of seeking ordination or my time in seminary. And I said, so I can't go into that patient's room. There was a little bit of a hubbub and they called the charge nurse and I said, look, I, sorry, someone else is going to have to go in there. And finally they relented and I didn't go in there again. But that threat is real. We destroy people's reputations all the time. People do it out of spite, out of jealousy, out of anger. And Jesus would lump that in with this commandment. Do not kill. Do not take someone's character from them. Do not take their livelihood from them. As we go through these commandments, if you haven't noticed yet, you're going to notice more as we're into these commandments that are dealing with how are we to live as one another in community. They're all linked if you really think about it. Why do people murder? 
They murder because they covet what someone else has. They murder out of false testimony against a neighbor. They murder for lots of reasons. Rarely are murders for no reason at all. All of these commandments are important to how we live with one another. And Jesus gets down to the spiritual component of it. It's easy to say, I haven't killed anybody. It's a lot harder to say, I haven't held anything against anyone. Or I'm not harboring anger towards anyone. Or I don't resent anybody. That's a lot harder for us. Because those things can sometimes feel good. That resentment we hold on to, the anger, we feel justified in it. And even if it feels good from time to time, it's destructive. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Those things are destructive to others and to us. And that's what murder is. Murder is destructive to the community because you are taking someone out of that community and leaving a hole. And we are all unique, created in the image of God, and we are irreplaceable. As we go through these commandments, we keep asking the question, what do they mean for us today? We were not here when they were given. We are not part of the community they were given to. And we are living post-resurrection, post-New Testament. I think one thing we can take from this, which would make us stand out in the world, is if we could be a community of people, if Christians could be communities of people that didn't harbor resentment or anger, that sought reconciliation and wholeness and healing when there were rifts, that sought unity of the community. The church would stand out in the world if we did those things. But unfortunately, people outside the church looking in see just more of the same. So take this as a challenge. If you are holding resentment or grudges, it's an invitation to lay those down. There's a good chance whoever you're holding against doesn't even remember what it's about. And if you sought forgiveness for holding it, they'd be confused. And ultimately, you're only hurting yourself and getting in the way of your relationship with God. So take God's invitation to lay those things down. To seek reconciliation where it's needed. To offer forgiveness in abundance. To seek to live together in community in meaningful ways. And honor each person as God sees them. Unique, gifted, 
and irreplaceable. 